This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Matthew 9, 9. In fact, we're going to talk this morning about the mission of Christ. Uh, we'll call it uh, what it was, a mission of mercy. What we were just singing about. He came, did what He did for us, so that we could go free. A mission of mercy. He came to rescue Matthew 9, verse 9. I'm just going to read a, a few verses here. Uh, let's see, we'll, we'll go down through verse 13. Verse 9, As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And He said to him, Follow Me. So He arose and followed Him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to come again this morning before You in the name of Jesus. Lord, giving You thanks for Your mercy for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the mission that He set out to accomplish and did accomplish to glorify You through the salvation of sinners, to bring rebels into submission for the glory of Your name, to heal, to heal the sick, not just the physically uh, ailing, but those who are spiritually sick. Lord, indeed, in that sense, we're all in need. Thank You for Your saving grace. We ask now that You uh, bless this time of study as we look at Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would enable me to deliver the message You want delivered here. Grant, I pray, accuracy, clarity. Open all of our ears to hear what You are saying. May it humble us before You. For Your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to take you back just a moment to uh, the the uh, event that immediately precedes this, and what we what we've seen all the way uh, through here, especially as, since we got into chapter eight. I've mentioned several times is an emphasis on Jesus' authority. That is his his authority as the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah. In fact, um, as Lord. He is through His teaching and through His, uh, through His deeds, His ministry, making His identity known. Now, it, it was not characteristic of Him to, to go around and, and just tell people flat out, uh, I am the Messiah. Sometimes He did that, but many times He did not. There was, as I mentioned before, great anticipation at this particular point in history. The Jewish people are are looking for the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, who they understand, uh, well, understand rightly so, to be the King of Israel, the, the, uh, the one who will inherit the throne of David. But um, their understanding of how that would all play out uh, was much in error. Um, they are looking for someone who will reestablish the nation of Israel as, as, as a sovereign kingdom, sit on a, a literal physical throne in the land of Israel, liberate them from Roman rule. And that's not exactly what Jesus came to do. <laughs> he, he did come as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He did come as the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is the King of Israel. In fact, King of kings and Lord of lords, He did come to set the oppressed free. He did come to reign and rule. And He's making that known. But He's not quite meeting their expectations, at least many of them, since they have their hearts set on a material kingdom. Now, we, we again, as I mentioned, we, we see His authority declared. Uh, in the miracles that he does, in the teaching, they noticed back in chapter uh, 7, uh, verse 28 and 29, uh, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. So, so his authority was evident in his teaching. We talked much about that, uh, how he himself um, spoke on a, on a, you know, put his own teaching on, on par with Scripture. He spoke on that level, taught on that level. I say unto you, he said many times, um, declaring, uh, evidencing inherent authority. And then he does many miracles here. Uh, for example, uh, in chapter 8, uh, he, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then in verse 16, chapter 8, verse 16, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then we get over to chapter 9, and a paralyzed man, a paralytic, is brought to him, lowered down through the roof uh, before Jesus, we're told in another account. And he says in chapter 9, verse 2, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now, obviously this man is brought to him for physical healing because he's paralyzed, he's a paralytic. And Jesus has been healing. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. He has been uh, revealing 
his identity through those means. He's been making his power and authority known. But now he, he, he gives a hint in this, in this event. He gives a hint of something greater. The man is put before him, physically impaired, and Jesus looks at the man and says, Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Well, this raises some eyebrows. The, the people are already astonished at, at the power, at the authority. He could speak to demons and they obeyed. He commanded obedience of the people, you know, but I say unto you, do this or do that. He could touch someone and heal their body. A leper, for example, is cleansed in chapter 8. He had that kind of power. He had that kind of authority. But who but God can forgive sins? I mean, again, the people are astonished at what He can do, but they certainly don't expect Him to forgive sins. That, that, that kind of authority is reserved for God and God alone. Now, the reason I'm, I'm going back to this because I'm suggesting that this is at the very heart of Jesus' mission. He's, he's on a mission of mercy. And, and of course, that is seen in all of, all of these deeds. Cleansing lepers, giving the blind their sight, casting out demons, relieving those with fever. But all of those things, as we've mentioned before, are the result of Evidence of, symptoms of, a greater and deeper problem. And that is sin. Every human being is affected by this malady, that, that of sin. And here, Jesus goes to the very root of the problem. Or, you could say, could say this way, he, goes, he, he deals first of all with this man's greatest need. If he heals his body and doesn't deal with his sinfulness, well, there's, there's relief for a time. But eventually, at, at least beyond this life, if not sooner, uh, suffering will resume. But Jesus announces forgiveness of sins. And at once, verse 3 says, the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Because, again, only God can forgive sins, right? And Jesus goes on to heal the paralytic and send him home. Healthy. Physically and spiritually. He's, he's on a mission of mercy. And primarily, he came to deal with sin. So, again, in many cases, we see physical healings, we see relief from demonic powers, but sometimes there, there's no apparent problem with the person. Uh, that is, they, they don't have a physical disease, they're not demon-possessed, but nobody's exempt from this problem of sin. And so next, he comes upon a tax collector, verse 9. As I just said, no, no mention of any physical ailment here. 
No mention of demon possession or something like that. And yet, here again is a story of deliverance. Of setting free. Now, this is what I want us to focus in on this morning. Jesus' uh, mission of mercy and who it pertains to. In other words, who's qualified? Who meets the prerequisites to receive the benefits? Now, let's look first at His call, alright? The call of Jesus. Here, specifically, we're talking about um, Jesus' call of Matthew. Jesus came to call. And this is part of His mission. He's, he's putting out a call. Verse 9, verse nine as, chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And He said to him, Follow me. Now, the tax collectors uh, were not uh, thought well of in Jewish society. And you may be thinking, well, they're not thought well of in our society either. <laughs> but, but it's a little different here. Um, because the, the, the Jews are under Roman rule, tax collectors, the, the, the Jews that are, that are uh, engaged in that vocation, are considered traitors. Because they're working for the Romans. They're collecting taxes from the Jewish people for the Roman government. And beyond that, just a lot of them uh, were crooked. Uh, they, could, they could demand an amount higher than that which the Roman government was demanding and pocket the difference. And so for these reasons... Uh, the Jews didn't think much about tax collectors. And you see that throughout the Gospels. Uh, the the uh, scribes and the Pharisees speak disdainfully of tax collectors and sinners. They, that's a way of categorizing, grouping people that didn't meet their standards. They were considered unholy, profaned. And yet, it's, it's one of these men... Matthew, uh, elsewhere called Levi, that, that Jesus calls. What you would probably expect had you been there is that Jesus would have been singling out the religious leaders, those who were esteemed by the people, those who were thought well of, those who who were known for being set apart for religious purposes. The Pharisees. The very term Pharisee uh, it means the separated ones. They were sort of the Puritans of their day, except they had uh, obviously perverted God's law. They, they weren't doing what they were doing with pure motives. At least many of them weren't. And then there are the temple uh, elders and priests. All kinds of religious leaders that you would have expected if Jesus is trying to uh, gather an entourage, gather a group of men to work with Him in the coming kingdom, that he, you would expect that He would go to the, the cream of the crop. 
in religious circles. And instead, he's calling men like Matthew, a tax collector, a sinner, the dregs of society. And here's the call. It's simple. Follow me. Follow me. Now, when I say call, I don't just mean like, like you're, you know, someone would call you, call you by name. It's, it's, think of it this way. It's a summons. Now, there may be a little bit of analogy in, uh, you know, if you're, uh, you remember back your mother calling you for dinner or something like that. Sort of a summons, right? Come. In other words, it's, it's not just a, Invitation, it's, 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 it's a command. Come, follow me. And he says to Matthew, follow me. And he arose and followed him. When Jesus calls, now this is applicable to us as well, these, these two words um, are characteristic of Jesus' calling, follow me. So when Jesus calls, we must forsake all and followed him. We were talking about that in Sunday school this morning. In fact, Luke's account of this in Luke 5:28 says concerning Matthew, he arose and followed him. And he left all, according to Luke, he left all. That is he he he, he walks off of his job to follow Christ. And then we're told also in Luke concerning also in Luke five concerning Peter, James, and John, they forsook all and followed him. Now here, here's another case where they too left even their vocations. They forsook all and followed Christ. And that's built into the call. At least Jesus is saying that he must he must be first. Follow. Me. So, he, he has all the attention. It's a call to total, total devotion. Follow me. Forsake all else and follow me. We are uh, called to be like Abraham, you know, or Abram at the time. Abram was called out of his own country and from among his kin. And, and the Lord said, uh, get out of there, and I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know. And Abram packs up and goes, just strictly based on what God has told him to do. He, does, he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know how that land compares to the land that he's coming out of. He doesn't know what to expect, what he might meet along the way. He just trusts. God. And that's what we're called to do. It's a, it's a call to total devotion to Christ. Call of, of faith. I mean, it, it, it requires a response of faith. Trusting Christ. And it's a call to repentance. Again, Luke's uh, account in Luke 5.32, um, Jesus says, I've not Come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We have it here in verse 13. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So, Jesus says, follow me. 
It, it requires a change. Repentance is a change. You turn from something to something. In this case, to Christ. From everything else, from a life of sin, from a life of self-fulfillment or a life devoted to self-fulfillment, to a life devoted to Christ. It's leaving, leaving the old life behind. Leaving the, the sin behind. Matthew Henry notes, uh, for example, um, we find later the other disciples, those who were fishermen, like Peter, James, and John, Andrew. We find them occasionally fishing again, but we never, never more find Matthew at his sinful game. He left all to follow Christ. He, he, was, he was living a life of wrongdoing, apparently, and that is now behind him. It's a life of, of repentance. Jesus calls us to repentance. You remember early on as we began this book, um, we focused in a little bit on, for example, the content of the preaching of John the Baptizer. Back in Matthew chapter 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a call to repentance. He's there. Uh, John the Baptist is, is preaching. He's, he's making preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And he's preaching a message of repentance. And then Jesus comes on the scene preaching the same message in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what I'm saying is, all that is built into these two words. This call, this command, follow me. It's called a total devotion, because to follow Him, all attention must be on Him. That is, He becomes priority. He becomes the greatest treasure. He becomes... The primary pursuit, all attention is focused on Him, and it's a call to repentance. Everything else is left behind. A life of sin left behind for a life of commitment to Christ. We sang earlier um, the words of Isaac Watts here. Love so amazing, so divine... Demands my soul, my life, my all. It's a life of total devotion and total um, continual repentance, leaving all for Christ. Now think for a moment. Here Matthew is a sinner, tax collector, um, alienated basically from from uh, what we what we we would think of as respectable. People, Jewish society, outside in that sense, though he is a, a Hebrew, uh, he's thought of as a traitor. Here he is a sinner, an undesirable, and Jesus calls him to a life of discipleship, to a life of devotion, to a life of repentance. Think for a moment, where, where were you when Jesus found you? 
in sin. It's where we all were. We were in sin, in darkness. We were rebels. We were traitors. Guilty of high treason against the Most High God. Now, where are you today? Are you following Christ? Are you safe in Christ? Have you left all to follow Jesus? Now, you, you may not have, have walked off your job. Okay, that's not... I, I think we could, we could, uh, we could safely say, uh, based on the, uh, the rest of Scripture along with this, that's not demanded of everyone. But that kind of devotion is... Again, it's, it's built into the call. Follow me. means that Jesus comes first. So if it requires leaving job, if it requires leaving country and kin, then the disciple has that kind of devotion, that kind of trust in Christ to do just that. And we talked again in Sunday school this morning a little bit about how that might play out, how we are called to a life of dying to self, crucifying the flesh, our own selfish desires, called to a life of devotion to Christ and service to others. So Jesus becomes priority. He is over and above all. Have you left all to follow Christ? Have you repented of your sin, turned from it, from that life of selfishness to a life of service to Christ? Have you put aside selfish pursuits for the infinitely greater treasure of Christ and His kingdom? In other words, is that, is that the focus of your passion? Uh, is that what you pursue? Christ, to know Him, to know Him, to know Him more, to be more like Him. Philippians 3, Paul expresses his heart when he says, that I may know Him power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being made conformable to His death. Paul was saying, I want to like, be like Jesus even not only in life, but in death. I want to identify with Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to know the fellowship, the, the, the partnership, the partaking of His death. And ultimately know the glory, living with Him, being with Him for an eternity. Is your own life of little worth to you? Again, this is the Apostle Paul's philosophy. I don't count myself dear. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I'm crucified, Paul said. The life that I now live, I live by faith. It's Christ that lives in me. Or do you still seek your own interests? Do you strive for the well-being of others, esteeming them better than yourself? Or do you still strive for self? Command, follow me, and Matthew leaves all to follow Christ.
We must do the same. We must turn from sin and follow Jesus. All of our attention, all of our affection, all of the affection of our heart must be Christ-focused, Christ-centered. Matthew left all to follow Christ. What about us? Are you submitted to the rule of Jesus in your life? Verse 10, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Him and His disciples. And boy, this is much to the dismay of of the the religious uh, leaders here. Verse 11, When the Pharisees saw it, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This man is this man is is having fellowship with sinners. He's talking to sinners. He's sitting down. He's doing something intimate. That is eating with sinners. He's sitting down at table with them. Feasting with them. It's a call of devotion to Christ. It's a call of repentance. It's a call to fellowship with Jesus. Now, I love these pictures because here uh, Matthew is sitting at his tax office (laughs) doing his thing. Jesus walks by and says, follow me. He leaves all and follows Christ. And then where do we find him next? In intimate fellowship with Jesus. He's he's seated at table like, like a family member. Like a friend, like a like a loved one, he's sitting at table with Jesus, fellowshipping with him. And now there are many tax collectors and sinners g- gathered to dine with Jesus. It's similar to John eleven and twelve. There, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We've got a great, uh, what, in fact, what I like to call a perfect picture of salvation there in John eleven. Lazarus is dead. Jesus speaks and commands life. Commands Lazarus to come to Himself. And Lazarus comes. And what's the next scene? John chapter 12. They're, they're seated at table. There's, there's, Lazarus is dining with Jesus. He's raised from the dead. And now he's in fellowship with Christ. What a great picture of salvation. It's a life of devotion to Him. A life of repentance. A life where we're brought out of the darkness into the light. So, now we're in fellowship with Christ. And this is the same picture we have with Matthew. He's no longer seated at the tax office. He's no longer engaged in sinful activity. He's dining with his Lord. This is evidence of genuine conversion. The sinner though aware of his unworthiness, desires to be with his Lord. That's evidence of true conversion. He, he desires, Matthew desires to be with the Lord. He's dining with Jesus. He invites Him into His own home. That's, that's the setting here. We know from the other accounts in Mark 2 and Luke 5. Jesus calls Matthew into service, and then Matthew invites Jesus into his own home. That's, that's intimate relationship. That's wanting to get to know someone. 
Matthew's not, not hiding anything. He's saying, Lord, Lord, come. Come to my house. Come to my house. I want to know you better. I want to sit down with you and fellowship with you. There's an eagerness to recline and dine with the Lord. To hear His voice. To know His presence. There's not, not, a, uh, you know, not a shunning anymore of the Lord, but a desire to draw close to Him. A one-time experience is not enough. You know, Matthew's not just looking back on some event. Yeah, I remember that day. I was here. There I was in my office, and Jesus said, "Follow me." And uh, boy, I tell you, I've never had such a great feeling in my life. And and uh, I think I'm saved. Well, I didn't get up and follow him, but it just just to hear him say that just gave me a warm fuzzy feeling. Oh no, that's that's not Matthew's story. Jesus said, "Follow me." And Matthew forsook all and followed Him, and now we find Him in close communion with Christ. He desires His presence. Converted man or woman. Converted man or woman wants more. That's an amazing paradox, isn't it? Uh, Christ, Jesus... For the saved person, Jesus fully satisfies, and yet we're always thirsty. <laughs> you, you, you don't get enough. You don't say, okay, I've, I've had enough Jesus today. I've had enough Jesus for this week. I've had enough fellowship with Him. I've had enough dining with Him. Let me get back to the tax office. A lot to do. The truly converted person wants more. More of Jesus. More of Jesus. Not, not more religion. Not more morality. More of Jesus. And it's a call to make disciples. Fourthly, it's a call to make disciples. It's a call to devotion. That is, complete, total devotion to Christ. It's a call of repentance. Uh, not, not Again, not just a one-time thing, but lifelong repentance. You turn from sin. You turn from selfish ways and focus on Christ. Follow Him. Do His will. It's a call to fellowship. Intimate fellowship with the Lord. To experience, again, not a one-time experience, but on a daily basis to, to know His presence and to experience His presence. And it's a call to make disciples. There's another thing I find fascinating here in, uh, in verse 10. It happened as Jesus sat at the table in, in the house, that is in Matthew's house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, sat down with him and his disciples. It, it appears that Matthew did not only invite the Lord, you know, Jesus I'm going to fix a feast. Come and dine. Come and dine with me. I want to be in your presence. I want to know you. He didn't stop at that. He didn't just invite the Lord, but He invited a lot of His sinner friends, a lot of fellow tax collectors. That is, His, his, his realization about the identity of Christ drives Him to tell other people 
I've, I've found the Messiah. He's come. I've been set free. Now what Matthew desires is that others be set free as well. Like the woman at Jacob's well. She goes back to her town and says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. <laughs> I think he's the Messiah. I haven't seen anybody like this man before. I haven't heard anybody speak like this man. I haven't seen anybody do the things that this man does. There's something unique about this man. I found help in this man. And it drives them to tell others because they want others to find help as well. They want others to be set free as well. And so Matthew just invites tax collectors, come, 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 come and dine with Jesus. It's a call to discipleship. Now, that, that's built in those two words too. We just know from the rest of the Gospels. It's implied there. In fact, Jesus tells the disciples. Spoke to Peter and John and uh, Andrew, fishermen by trade, and He said, look, you follow Me, and from now on you'll be fishers of men. That's part of following Him. Now, let me be clear on this. When I say it's a call to make disciples, and I'm, and I'm getting this from here, and I'm getting it from Matthew 28, Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples. But I'm not making disciples. You're not making disciples of us. Not making disciples of me, people to follow me. Disciples of Christ. That's what we want to see, is people follow Christ. So Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. Tell people to follow Him. Paul said, mimic me as I mimic Christ. So ultimately, we we point people to Christ. And that's what Matthew's doing. Come, Come and dine. Come and dine with Jesus. It's a call to discipleship. So first of all, uh, it, it's a call that Jesus is issuing. Not just then, but still today. Call by Jesus to total devotion, to a life of repentance, to fellowship with Him, and to disciple-making for Him. It is a call that Jesus issues, a command, a mandate. Follow me. Now, who's qualified? What does it take? You know, everybody here probably at some time or another, you've been on job interviews. There's a invitation, as it were, you say, put out, posted. Maybe in the form of a classified ad, maybe uh, maybe by word of mouth, a sign, maybe out front, wanted. Here's what we need. In this case, wanted. You know, followers. Now, usually a job uh, ad would have the qualifications, right? Nuclear scientist, and then you know, and then you got all the the qualifications there. And I don't have a clue what they would be, other other than a whole lot of school. Whatever it is. 
truck driver, and then it might say, you know, CDL required. I always look for the ones that, you know, no experience necessary. I always like that one. <laughs> now, there are qualifications here, too. What are the qualifications? It's here in the text. Again, verse 10. Now, it happened as Jesus sat at table or at the table that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, he, he gives the qualifications right there. You've you got to be sick. You've got to be sick. I've, I've, I've heard people say of Christians before, uh, things like, uh, well, you know, Statistics show that people that believe those kinds of things have have uh, mental problems and uh, you know they've got issues and I, I say uh, to that uh, that's just right that's right or you know we've all heard for example the communist uh, Soviet Union uh, the uh, <clears throat> Marxist idea that religion is for the weak-minded well I would say again that's right. <laughs> That's right. As far as the sick, Jesus says, I've come. A, a well person doesn't need a physician. I came for the sick, and I came for the sinners. I mean, this, this is better than no experience necessary, you know. Because everybody's a sinner. Now, now let me say this. Because Jesus puts people in two categories here, and uh, it, it, it's could be easily misunderstood. Again, verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So you got the well and the sick. And then verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So the righteous and sinners. So he's putting everybody in those two categories that he describes in, in two different ways. You know, the well and the sick are uh, the righteous and sinners. So, is he saying then that these are two, category, two categories of people that are out there? You, you've got well people in a, in a spiritual sense, because that's what we're really talking about here. We're not talking about physically. We're talking about spiritually. Spiritual wellness. Spiritual sickness. Are there people out there that are well spiritually? Which uh, would be, uh, another way of describing them would be righteous so that Jesus would be saying, he's saying to the Pharisees, um, I came for those who are sinners. N not you, because you're righteous. Not you, because you're well. And I came for the sick. Well, he is saying that. But he doesn't mean it in the most literal sense. He's not, he's not acknowledging that the Pharisees are truly righteous 
So let, let me paraphrase it this way just for explanation. He, he's talking about two categories. Now, I would say it this way. Those who think they are righteous, or you could, for that same category, you could say those who think they are well, and then the second category, those who realize they are sinners. Or, again, same category, those who realize they are sick. See, because the, the truth is, nobody's righteous. There's been one righteous human being in the history of this world. And I don't just mean someone whose life is characterized in a general sense by well-doing. I'm talking about totally righteous, totally without sin. There's been one in the history of the world. And that's Jesus. So if He were meaning that in the most strict literal sense, He's the only one that goes in that category of righteous. But that's not what He's talking about. He's talking about those who think they are righteous. And He's saying, I didn't come for them. Those who think they are well. He's saying, I didn't come for you. That's what He's telling the Pharisees. You've disqualified yourself. You don't meet the qualifications because you don't see your need. Why, why would you need a Savior? Or I should say, why would a Savior come for you? Because you, you've disqualified yourself. You don't see yourself in need of a Savior. Why would a physician come to you when you don't see that you are sick? They don't meet the qualifications. He came for sinners. He came for those who are sick. He came for tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. He came for people that, you know, may not be a tax collector or a prostitute or a, or a sinner in the sense that everybody else looks down on them as being the scum of society, they may be the most upright person in the community from a human perspective. But they realize their own sin and their own need for a Savior. That's, that's who He came for. Those who acknowledge their sickness. Those who acknowledge their sin. Now, this, this is what the Scripture teaches, that all are under sin. We're all sinners. Romans chapter 3, for example, verse 9. Both Jews and Greeks, Paul says, are all under sin. For as it is written, Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, Paul is talking there about in the most ultimate sense. That is, being righteous before God. And, and, and Paul says, there's not one. There's not one out there. They don't exist. Again, Galatians 3. The Scripture has confined all under sin. 
that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And that would be those who acknowledge their sin. Have you ever agreed with God concerning your own sinfulness? It's a qualification. That is, there has to be, you have to realize that you're a sinner. Have you ever felt the weight of your sin? Have you ever said like David in Psalm 38, My sin has gone over my head. And has a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Does, does your own corruption inside, inside yourself, does your own corruption, is, is it that real to you? Have you felt the weight of it? Have you ever come to see your need for a Savior? Again, uh, like David, Psalm 51. He prayed, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Same chapter, Psalm 51, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You ever had that, that kind of realization that... that there's no hope within, and that there's no hope even even from man. There's no hope outside apart from God, so that your heart cries out to God for mercy. Create in me a clean heart. Wash me. Take away my iniquity. Have you ever seen your need for a Savior? Have you ever felt the reality of the wrath of God pressing down upon your soul? Not a pleasant thing to think about, but a reality nonetheless. Again, Psalm 38. David says, Rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. Is, is that cry familiar? Have, have you ever, ever had any realization of the wrath of God pressing down on your soul? Have you ever seen your need for a Savior? Have you, have you ever acknowledged your own sinfulness? Apparently, the Pharisees had not. And they thought themselves... 
to be righteous. They thought themselves to be well. They thought themselves better than the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, you know, those who weren't as devoted to religious life and activity as they were. They thought themselves above. And in doing so, disqualified themselves from Jesus' mercy. He's on a mission of mercy here. He came to save. He came to rescue sinners, the sick. Now, if you believe the testimony of Scripture, in other words, you understand that we're all in that condition, that none of us are exempt then this is incredible, incredibly uh, good news. He didn't come for the elite. He didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for the well. He came for me. And for you. Sinners. That's the qualification. You've got to be a sinner. You, you have to be a sinner. And know it. Where do you stand this morning with Jesus Christ? If you were totally honest, would you identify more with the mindset of the Pharisees here? Thinking yourself to be a good person, respectable, worthy, worthy of the Lord's attention. Shocked and indignant when he shows it, his attention to a undeserving person instead? Or would you more readily identify with the leper? Or the paralytic? Are the demon possessed? Are the prostitutes, the tax collectors like Matthew? If those are the ones you identify with, you uh, you, you you may not you may not have a lot of prestige in your community, <laughs> you know, from your fellow man. You may, you may not. But if you're in that group, the sick, sinners, then you qualify. Jesus came for you. He came for me. He came for you. The call is for us. Follow me. Would you stand?
we're just going to close with a word of prayer. And I just ask you to consider those things. Jesus came to save sinners. He calls us to Himself to a life of devotion and repentance. To a life of making disciples. To a life of following Him. Living in submission to Him, to His will. Is that where you are today? Uh, if not, then I pray, Lord. I pray that you cry out to Him. Surrender. Heed His call. <laughs> Follow Him. Follow Him. Let's pray. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.